Well, today we are resuming our series on Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And what a radical, countercultural sermon it is. That's why we're calling the series, by the way, uh, 180 Be the Revolution. And let's take a few moments. I want to go back and review some of the themes that we've been looking at over the course of number of weeks now. We took a break because of Christmas, so we're back today. So let's review some of these themes that reveal the radical revolutionary nature of what Jesus is sharing with us. So you may look at this chart, and you'll see what I mean. Jesus begins by describing the character qualities that identify Christian people in eight statements commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. So when Jesus says to us, for example, blessed are those who are poor in spirit or those who mourn, blessed are peacemakers and so forth, he's not uttering commands. He's not telling us, come on people, try harder, reflect these qualities. No, he's identifying those who are part of his kingdom. Authentic Christians will to some extent embody all eight of these character qualities. So if you're a Christ follower, these eight will mark out your life. Never perfectly, at least not in this life, but nevertheless, there will be the characteristics that will identify you. And already we're seeing the radical nature of what Jesus is sharing with us because only Christ followers embody these eight qualities. Now. In the second section, he goes on to talk about then what will be our influence as we reflect these character qualities in the world in which we live, Jesus says we'll be the salt of the earth, we'll be the light of the world. So as salt in the ancient world was rubbed into meat as a way of preventing decay, they didn't have refrigeration, Jesus says in similar ways, as you and I are rubbed into the fabric of society, so instead of staying within the safety and confines of a church building, only surrounding ourselves with other Christians, we're permeating the world in which we live. Jesus says we will arrest its moral and spiritual decay by ministering to the physical needs of broken people and at the same time proclaiming the gospel of light to those who are in moral and spiritual darkness. So that's our influence in the world. He doesn't say that, salt of the earth, light of the world, about government, science, technology, any of these other things. He says it about the Christian community. Again, another radical uh, revelation from what Jesus is teaching. Third section goes on to describe the Christian's authority. So what is our moral compass? What is to guide us in life in terms of what we believe and how we, we live, what we value? Well, Jesus indicates that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, by which he means scripture, but rather to fulfill them. So it's the Bible that is the source of our authority. And through six examples that Jesus gives to us, whether he's talking about anger management, lust and adultery, whether he's reflecting on truth telling or loving our enemies, whatever it is, you know, his examples, he's essentially saying to us that the Bible is not just an external guide, it's to shape 
the attitudes and the motives of our hearts. So that's the third section. Then he proceeds to talk about a Christian's devotional life. That's in chapter six, the first 18 verses, where through three examples, dealing with prayer, that's not first, giving, prayer, and fasting, Jesus indicates that whenever we're expressing devotion to God, like we've been doing today, we're to do it in ways that reflect reality and sincerity. So those are some of the great takeaways from that section. All right, having seen then something of the radical nature of what Jesus is saying to us, how he's calling us to do life very differently, we now come to his radical teaching on his description of a Christian's attitude toward money and possessions. What are we to think about from Jesus' perspective about money and possessions? What radical changes do we need to make in life? What are the key decisions we need to make in this area as his followers? Well, to find out, I'm gonna invite you to stand for the public reading of the Word of God as recorded in our text for the morning, Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Let's hear God's truth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot faithfully serve both God and money. Here ends the reading of scripture. You may be seated. Well, the economy is very much on our minds these days, isn't it? We're concerned about inflation, interest rates, possibility of recession. Maybe you're concerned about ongoing employment. So we're very much concerned about this issue of the economy. Consequently, there are a number of people who subscribe to weekly or monthly newsletters that promise you investment information that it will be well worth your while if you subscribe to their particular publication. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. For a mere $598 a year, you can subscribe to the Value Line Investment Survey. Any takers? Okay, maybe not. Or for $240, you can receive the Dow Theory Letters. Or for $500 a year, you can receive the Investor's Intelligence Report. Now, all of these investment newsletters lead you to believe if you read and heed the information contained within them, you will reap significant investment rewards. And so lots of people subscribe. Maybe some of you do to some of these things or others like them. Now I mention all of this to you because in the section we're gonna look at that I just read for you from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out what could be described as a, a kind of investment strategy for his followers for no fee. 
No monthly subscription fees whatsoever, okay? And his strategy promises eternal payoffs for those who faithfully carry out his instruction. And so this morning, I want us to look at the key points of Jesus' eternal investment strategy by comparing it to one of these financial investment letters like those that I just mentioned. So if we were to do that, and you're reading some of these investment publications or others like them, you will first of all see that what a good monthly letter will always advise you to do is what not to invest in. Sometimes these letters will say, as an example, you know, you need to bail out of transportation stocks or sell your utilities or stay away from high tech, you know, whatever. And then the newsletter will go on to give you the rationale as to why that particular strategy is being recommended. Well, in a similar way, Jesus' first point in his eternal investment strategy is to tell his followers what not to invest in. This is what he says in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What's that about? Well, if you're taking notes using that sermon outline that you can get uh, before coming into the service, uh, this is what you want to write down. Be bearish on anything that can be moth-eaten, rust out, or ripped off. <laughs> there you go. So what does that mean? Well, why in the world do you want to invest in depreciating items that could when you could invest your capital in appreciating items that could bring a pile of rewards in eternity. Why would you want to do that? So Jesus, in effect, is saying this. If you keep investing in stuff, for example, that thieves can steal from you, you're exposing your investment in a risk factor that is just not wise. So there are other investments that are much more secure. And so he says, my counsel to you is only carry the basic minimum amount of investment in earthly treasures. Yeah, you'll have to do some of that, but that's not where your heart belongs. Now, all of this makes perfect sense to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, perfect sense. We get the wisdom of what Jesus is saying we can see how it all makes good sense and that someday will lead to an enormous payoff in eternity. We get that. But to a partially devoted follower of Jesus or someone who is not even yet part of the family of God, I think Jesus' strategy creates some mental anguish, some spiritual and mental chaos. Such people kind of scratch their heads at this point and they say, well, wait a minute. Come on, Jesus, I mean, almost everything I like, everything I dream about possessing, everything I want to live for, seems to fall into one of these categories of something that rots, rusts, or has the potential of being stolen. To which Jesus would say, yeah, I know. Which is why I'm trying to tell you that from an eternal perspective, your neck deep and ill-advised, low return, highly vulnerable, investments. Now, it's as if Jesus would say once again, it's not a big deal, you know, it's not the end of the world to carry a few losers, but the bulk of your portfolio should be invested in winners as evaluated from an eternal perspective. And so the first sign of a good investment letter is to tell you what to stay away from. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Now, I'm gonna ask you a question. Does this teaching create a little bit of mental anguish and spiritual chaos for you in your thinking? I mean, let's face it, what Jesus is sharing here does sound radical, does it not? He's calling for another radical, countercultural 180 decision. In a society that's intoxicated with stuff, stuff that really doesn't matter, a hill of beans from the perspective of eternity, for Jesus to say, don't fix your heart there, fix it elsewhere, does create a little bit of anguish for many of us, does it not? And so to emphasize the importance of not investing and living for stuff, Randy Alcorn, in his book entitled The Treasure Principle, recommends that parents take their children on a field trip to a junkyard. And this is what he says following that statement. Sooner or later, everything we own ends up there. Christmas and birthday presents, cars, boats, hot tubs, clothes, stereos, barbecues, the treasures that children quarreled about, friendships were lost over, honesty was sacrificed for, and marriages broke up over, all end up there as landfill. Let that sink in. That's powerful. So, that's what not to invest in. But secondly, the sign of a quality investment letter is that it goes on to tell you what to invest in. It may say, for instance, load up on bonds, or you need to diversify, or get into renewable energy, whatever. And then it goes on to give you the rationale, the reasons why they're making those kinds of recommendations. Well, in a similar way, Jesus' next point in his investment strategy is to advise us concerning what we should load up on as well. So having said, do not store up, now he says, verse 20, store up. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what's he saying here? Well, here's the summary. Write it down in your notes. Be bullish on the heavenly stuff because that's where you ought to be directing your energies and resources. So then he explains his rationale, just like one of these investment letters. He says that any investment that you make along these lines is absolutely risk-free. Heavenly stock and investments, rust-proof, moth-proof, burglar-proof, and the return on your investment is guaranteed by the real FDIC, the father's Deposit Insurance Corporation. And yeah, I made that up. <laughs> okay. So he's saying this, be bullish on the heavenly treasures. Get as much of that as you possibly can because when the investment period ends, you're going to be shocked in a positive way by your eternal net worth. And you're going to cry out, Jesus, it was worth it. I mean, Lord, there were times on planet Earth where I'm listening to all of these commercials and I'm hanging around with other people and some of their values are impacting me and I'm thinking, wow, look at all the stuff I could buy, what I could enjoy, the things that would really make me happy. But Lord, I'm so glad that ultimately I followed your strategy and it paid off. That's what we'll learn when we'll get to heaven. 
Now, I think the key practical question at this point that needs to be raised is this one. How exactly do we do this? I mean, how do you load up on heavenly stock? What broker do you contact, right? How, how, how does this work? How can you be bullish on heavenly treasures? I want to suggest that the question gets answered when we look back at the previous section that I tried to summarize for you a few moments ago, where in the beginning part of this sixth chapter, Jesus is describing for us a Christian's devotional life. And he gives three examples, giving, praying, and fasting. So now, taking that section and combining it with this section, it's as if Jesus is saying, every time you invest your giving, your praying, and your fasting for my kingdom, there will be huge dividends that will accrue to your account in eternity. So let's look back very briefly at what Jesus says in verses two to four about giving money to God's work. Every time you invest your money for Christ, Okay? by supporting ministries that care for the poor, for example. As we heard this morning, you've done very effectively in your support of the Winter is Coming Ukraine Christmas Offering Project, 20,000, 5,000 above our, our goal even. You support those kinds of ministries or you're supporting the life and ministry of the church with your tithes and offerings. Jesus says this to us in verse four of, of the sixth chapter, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. One very wealthy Christian businessman said, you know, I am so filled with joy and a sense of relief when I write out a check or use direct deposit to support God's work in the world. And so he was asked, why do you feel a sense of joy and relief when you're writing out a check or using direct deposit to support God's work in the world? Why, why would you feel that way? Well, because he said, I know it's safe forever. And I know it's no longer susceptible to my losing it or buying a bunch of stuff that I don't even really need. He further said, I know that someday I'm going to be recommended by the Savior himself. Well, you can identify with that, can't you? I mean, don't you, when you give, experience joy when out of love for Christ or concern for others, you transfer funds from your earthly account to your heavenly account? I mean, that's how people respond who are fully devoted followers of Jesus, right? But those who are partially devoted, or those who aren't even part of the family of God at all, see absolutely no logic to this strategy at all. They regard it as a pure loss on an earthly ledger sheet. I mean, to them, it's a non-recoverable expense, or to use a business term, it's a flush, it's a total loss. Such people, of course, are living for the here and now. So they have no eternal perspective by which to evaluate these things. They don't see what Jesus is even talking about. It doesn't make any sense to them. But what Jesus is doing here is promising you that if you, if you will change your strategy, if you will invest generously to support the work of my kingdom, Jesus is saying, that's not a flush. That's not a loss, it's a guaranteed investment, and someday you will see 
and experience a great reward. So that's what he says essentially about giving. Now, in the rest of that section, in earlier in chapter 6, verses 5 to 18, he talks about praying and fasting. And the same principle applies. Every single minute that you pray or fast for matters of spiritual significance is logged. It's recorded in your heavenly portfolio. I mean, think about it like this. Every time you pray for your spouse, every time you pray for one of your kids or your grandkids, or you're praying for your friend at school, or for a coworker or a neighbor that has a particular concern, every time you pray or fast for a certain ministry, for that matter, and the work of God in a particular country, I mean, it's logged. Jesus is remembering all of this stuff. So in short, every gift you give, every prayer you offer, every act of service that you perform is registered in your name in heaven itself. Not a single thing that you do for the cause of Christ is ever missed. So how are we doing personally and as a church when it comes then to such investments? Well, um, in the last probably year or so, I have tried to pay more attention than typically I do to Christian publications that are actually revealing the same kind of story when it comes to this issue. And that is that churches, generally speaking, there are exceptions, but generally churches all over our country are feeling the impact of the pandemic and now even the economy when it comes to this matter of financial support. I mean, I wish it weren't true for City Church, but I suspect it is. So I think it's time for an honest, direct conversation with you as a church family. So if you're a guest here today, I just want to say this to you. I don't think this church talks very much about money at all. In fact, I don't think we probably talk about it enough. But we're going to talk about it today. Why? Because it's part of the text that we're considering as we work our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I just want to talk to the family for a moment, all right? First of all, I want to say this. You should be thrilled at what the staff and the other leaders of this church are doing when it comes to managing your funds, what you give. I mean, we have a team here that is exercising good spending controls. And that's amazing. Every time we have one of these town hall meetings and there's a financial report by our treasurer or, or our chair, the same thing is uttered. Staff is doing an enormous job when it comes to managing these things, and they really are. But even though we planned that this would be year two of a deficit budget where we're utilizing some of our reserve funds if necessary, there's a concern that that deficit budget could grow beyond what was even initially planned for. So, how do we deal with that? Well, if everybody in the church family here, you know, was seeking to embody and flesh out Jesus' invest, investment strategy, it probably wouldn't be an issue. But are we all doing that? Are you? Are you doing that? Now, some of us, some of you, maybe unemployed or underemployed, and frankly, you can't give right now. Okay, Jesus also talks about praying and fasting for the work of the kingdom. Those are some things you could do if you're not doing those consistently. 
Others of you perhaps need to start investing your resources in Jesus' kingdom. You say, okay, I mean, if Jesus is real about this, how do, where do I start? Well, Jesus, the only time he talked about tithing, which by the way, comes from a Hebrew word meaning 10%, would suggest that that's a good starting point. And actually, every example of giving throughout the New Testament goes beyond the tithe. They're all examples of offerings. So you have tithes where you essentially give 10% of what your income is to support the work of God in and through the ministry of your church home, your family. But then there are also additional gifts, offerings that could be given to other kinds of ministries that you're very concerned about. All right. So on average, a typical American Christian according to these surveys, gives anywhere from 3 to 5%. Not 10%, 3 to 5%. It's my understanding that if we were to all give 10%, we wouldn't have a deficit situation. So that's a challenge for some of you. And if you are tithing, maybe God would prompt you to increase your giving, you know, 11, 12, 15%, whatever the case may be. I want to suggest to you over the course of the next few months, before a new senior pastor starts, this is a great opportunity for us as a church family to see what can be done in the area of giving. But beyond that, you want a greater motivation to give? Here it is. Consider giving, praying, and fasting, the three examples that Jesus gives, out of generosity for what God and Christ has so richly given to you in a savior. The way to move your heart toward greater expressions of generosity is to remind yourself consistently of what Jesus has done for you. And of course, on top of all of that, you'll be piling up significant treasure in heaven. So, question. What concerns you the most today? Your earthly net worth or your heavenly net worth? I say that because Jesus goes on to say that your heart is going to be fired up about the net worth that matters most to you. This is what he says in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you're either going to be fired up for your earthly net worth or the heavenly, but it's not going to be both. Not going to be mixed in some fashion. So ask yourself, you know, what... What do you get to talk about when you, choose, you can choose the topic of conversation? Is it ever about spiritual matters? So what are your priorities today? Maybe this is a good time for you to examine yours because Jesus would say to you, yeah, we're living in a culture that's antithetical to the things of God. It tells you it's all about the here and now, immediate gratification. And Jesus is saying, no, it's much more than that. Okay, so the third sign then of a quality investment letter is that it's gonna tell you to uh, be concerned about the overall economy, pay attention to what's going on in the world and in our country when it comes to even between newsletters. You know, they might say, pay attention to, to uh, for example, unemployment statistics or government reports or bad weather in breadbasket states, whatever and uh, go on to give then the rationale for that. In other words, a good newsletter attempts to address investment vision. 
And in a similar way, Jesus' strategy, his third point is exactly the same thing about making sure your spiritual vision stays on target. So in verses 22 and 23, he talks about the eye. And I want to paraphrase what I think Jesus is saying here. He's saying in effect this, whatever you do, don't let your spiritual vision get blurred about matters that are being communicated to you from our culture. Don't ever let that happen because if your vision gets blurred, your spiritual vision, it's going to impact everything in your life, your body, everything, he says. So he's urging us to stay sharp about the idea that the here and now is not all that there is. Our culture says, have it all, have it now. And Jesus says, no, that's an antithetical world life view. So he's saying you're going to have to clean your lenses every day because your culture is constantly bombarding us when it comes to their value system. So you have to clean your lenses and stay sharp when it comes to the disciplines in your life that you need to keep that eternal perspective. All right, so that's the third. The fourth key is an inspirational challenge. So sometimes the newsletter will end with somebody giving a kind of a testimonial, how they followed the, the teaching of the newsletter and they reaped a bundle, and then they went out and bought a yacht or a sports car or whatever, you know? And then the editor will kind of take over and say, and now friends, isn't that what life is really all about? Isn't it about securing more money through your investments, paying attention to our strategies so you can buy more stuff, so you can really be happy? And in a sense, what they're really telling us is that the God of the investment community is money. Well, Jesus ends his strategy by acknowledging that his advice and that which comes from our culture today, the world, are diametrically opposed to one another. Whoa, this is how he ends. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot faithfully serve both God and money. So to be very blunt about it, you cannot have God and the American dream. Those two things don't mix. It's gotta be one or the other, okay? Now to illustrate how this works, I heard about a Christian, very wealthy, successful businessman who is concerned about the possibility of losing it all in the economy. And so he paid thousands of dollars to hire a counselor, an investment strategist, life planning expert from New York City, flew this individual to his home, and this guy sat down in the living room with this Christian businessman and his wife. They talked for hours. And then this counselor gets out a flip chart and a pen, and he draws in the middle of this flip chart a square box. And he says, you know, after interviewing you for now a couple hours, I need to ask you to tell me one thing before we can go further and plan something out for the next 10, 15, 20 years of your life. He said, I heard you talk about your business, and obviously that's important very important to you and your employees and all of that. But I also heard you talk about your faith. 
and how important Jesus is to you and, and your Christian life. So before we go any further in charting out this course for you, you're gonna have to tell me what goes in the box. He said, yeah, whenever I do life planning, I need to start with a client's highest value because your goals, your plans and strategies will all flow out of that highest value. So he said, what do you want me to write in the box? I could put a dollar sign and we'll plan out a strategy that will make you more money than you have ever made in your entire life up until now. It'll be amazing, the stuff you can buy and the places to which you can travel, it'll be incredible. Or, he said, I could put God in the box and I'll help you plan out a strategy that will bring pleasure to God for the next 10, 15, 20 years of your life. So what do you want me to write in the box? Well, the Christian said, wow, for the first time in my life, I realized what Matthew 6:24 was all about. No one can serve two masters because there's only one room, only room that is for one in the box. Can't be both. So what is it? It's not that the earthly stuff is insignificant. It is, it's important. But what's your highest value? What, is your, what does your heart tell you? So he said after some reflection, write God in the box. So he did. Now, I'm leading up to asking you a question. Here's the question. Service is over. Hopefully you've stayed for the Sunday morning community on mental health. But eventually you get in your car, you drive home, get home. Five minutes later, there's a knock on the door and there's your counselor, your investment person who chats with you for a while, opens up a flip chart, draws a box, and wants to know from you, what is your highest value? What do you want me to write in your box? Wow. I hope you can say, I want God written in my box because I want my life to revolve around giving honor and glory to God, including my attitude toward money and my possessions. If that's your conviction, Jesus is saying you're piling up treasure in heaven. And the day will come when he will commend you for what you've done and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. May God grant that that will be each of our responses. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you this morning for your eternal investment strategy. For not letting us grope around in the dark and be lost about what we should be doing with our lives and our money. Thank you for letting us know that the here and now is not all there is. And for inspiring so many people in this church to live for eternity and not to be locked in to what is just temporary. And so Lord, someday we'll stand before you and worship you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And we just wonder what it's gonna be like to hear you say, thank you. Thank you for how you live for me. Lord, may that prospect encourage each of us in the ways in which we seek to work out our life plan for your glory. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen.